0: As we study the early church in the book of Acts, we see an unusual harmony among God's people. That unity and the belief that the Lord would soon return led believers to share their possessions and use them freely to advance the kingdom. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. A man named Barnabas laid the proceeds of the sale of his property at the apostles' feet, and received more than a little attention for his generosity. Two others mimicked his giving by selling their land, but instead of giving all, kept some for themselves, and then perjured themselves in the presence of the apostles. Stay with us as Dr. Boyce examines the actions of Ananias and Sapphira, just what made their deeds so wrong and the implications for the church
1: today. We've come to the fifth chapter of Acts in our study of this important New Testament book and to a familiar story. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira, two people who sinned against God, lying to him in the midst of the Christian assembly and whom God struck dead. Whenever I think of these two, I think of a sermon that was preached here nearly 30 years ago by Donald Gray Barnhouse, a former pastor of this church, entitled, Men Whom God Struck Dead. In those days, you could use the word man to include women, Ananias and Sapphira were both included in that, but the title embraced more than this one New Testament incident, It included the story of Nadab and Abihu from the Old Testament to men, to priests who offered improper fire upon God's altar and were struck dead for that. And the story of Uzzah, who's told about in 2 Samuel, the sixth chapter, who reached out and touched God's ark when it was being transported up to Jerusalem in the time of David, and who was struck dead for that. This particular sermon that linked all three of these incidents together pointed out, quite rightly, I believe, that so far as we can tell, each one of these individuals was what we would call a believer. That is, they were not some heathen king who was blaspheming against God, some monarch or philosopher who in the arrogance of an unbelieving heart had set himself up against God and his anointed. These were people in the fellowship of the family of God actually engaged in what we would call Christian worship, and they were all struck dead for what to us at least seemed to be, I hate even to use the word, but let's use it. They seemed to us to be trivial offenses. It's an interesting thing to put those together because it tells us, if it tells us nothing else, that God thinks about these things differently than we do. I said they were all apparently believers and all were struck dead for what were apparently trivial offenses. While we're linking them together, let's notice a couple of other things. All, as I said before, were engaged in God's service. In the case of The two priests, Abihu and Nadab, they were offering fire upon the altar of God. A flame flew out from the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle and killed them. And Uzzah was transporting the Ark up to Jerusalem on a joyous occasion with thousands of people gathered around, leading in that great ceremony of worship. And Ananias and Sapphira, too, we're taking part in a Christian assembly at the time of the offering in the midst of Christian worship. We also should notice, and I think this is perhaps the explanation of the severity of this punishment, that in each instance these were important new beginnings in God's dealings with His people. Something new was being inaugurated, a new era was about to come in, and so these were initial events And God, it would seem, took pains to establish at the beginning of these new ventures that the relationship of His people to Himself is a serious, serious one indeed. Now, we're not here to study the earlier stories, but we are here to study the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We're at chapter 5, as I said, but we can't do that, plunging in to chapter 5, without just looking back a few verses to what we saw at the end of chapter 4. That's because there's a deliberate setting of the story by Luke, the author of the book. You look back to those verses beginning with verse 32 in chapter 4, you'll find that what Luke is describing for us there is a picture of unusual unity and harmony in the early Christian church. Now, he didn't have to do that at this point. When we were talking about that last week, I pointed out that in some ways it's a repetition, a parallel passage to what we've already found at the end of chapter two. The very end of chapter two, after Pentecost and Peter's great sermon, after the Holy Spirit had come and so many had been brought into the church, we're given a picture of that early fellowship of believers. It's a delightful thing indeed. We're told that they continued in the apostles' teaching, that is, they were one in doctrine, and in fellowship, they were one in heart and mind, the very phrase that's used later, and they took part in worship together, in the breaking of bread and the prayers. And moreover, out of that there came a generosity of spirit on behalf of these early Christians. And so they sold what they had, they pooled it, and when anybody had need, they took from what they had in that common treasury and saw that the person wasn't lacking. When we come to chapter 4, we find exactly the same thing. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had, and they spent their whole time testifying to the resurrection of their Lord. I say, you see, this description in chapter 4, is a repetition or parallel to what we have in chapter 2. And when we realize that, we understand that Luke is giving that here, not merely to repeat himself, because he's far too good in a story into that, but in order to set up a contrast between this moment of harmony in the early church and the disruption or disharmony that came as a result of Ananias and Sapphira's deception. You see it in another way as well. Not only... Does Luke describe in general terms what this time of sharing was about? But in verse 36, he brings in a particular individual. Man's name was Joseph, and he came from Cyprus. And if I may say so, somewhat as a parenthesis, that may be a significant comment and why he in particular is singled out. You must remember, and it probably throws light on this time of unique sharing in the early history of the church, that Jesus, the master of these disciples, had prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem. He had said it was going to come, it would come soon, and that when his disciples saw it, they were to leave the city immediately and get out of there. When the destruction finally did come under the Romans, some of the Christians remembered that and did leave the city. So these Christians were probably living with a thought of that in their minds. It may well be why They were so willing to sell all they had in these days. They might have said, now the Lord has told us that Jerusalem is going to be overthrown. Our possessions are not going to do us any good then. The thing to do is sell them and use them in the Lord's work now. As I say, I can't prove that that's the case. It's only a bit of what I hope is sanctified speculation on my part, but it would explain why that occurred here early in the church, and so far as we know, it's not repeated elsewhere. It does have a parallel. Someday you're going to die, and so far as you're concerned, what you're able to do with your possessions will end then. It certainly has a parallel, an application in this area. Take care how you use your possessions now. Make them count. I'm not saying to sell them all. That, in normal situations, is an unwise thing to do. But... Make sure you use them for the Lord. At any rate, I get that from the fact of Joseph, a Levite, being from Cyprus because at least here in the case of this one man, here was somebody who had possessions that were not in Jerusalem and therefore were unlikely to be affected by the judgment that Jesus said was coming. That's probably where his field was. That's where his home was found that's the case, then it would explain why this man in particular was remembered by the early church. Here was a man who didn't have to sell what he had. It didn't even make any sense, humanly speaking, for Joseph to sell what he had, but he did it. He said, I want my possessions to be used as much as possible for my brethren here, for the needy, and in the expansion of the gospel. And so when he sold his field, he took the money that he got from it, and he put it at the feet of the apostles, the way they apparently gave their gifts and their worship in those days. Luke tells us that this man was given a new name by the early Christians. He was called Barnabas, the same Barnabas that later is traveling with Paul. This is where Luke begins to introduce him, to put him into the narrative as a character that we're going to see later. Barnabas means son of encouragement and it may well be again I say I'm not sure you can prove this but the fact that it all occurs together in this verse does suggest it that they called him son of encouragement because of the way he acted oh undoubtedly because that was his character as well but his character had expression in the act he gave generously of what he had and they said ah we are encouraged when we are with a man like that what an encouragement that is to us and so they called him Barnabas the son of of encouragement. And somewhere, somewhere, sitting over on the side of the church, there were these two people, Ananias and Sapphira, and they were looking on. And they were saying, boy, I wish people thought about us like that. Look at all the attention they're giving to Barnabas. He sold his field. He gave the money. They rename him. They call him Son of Encouragement. How marvelous it would be to be regarded like that by our Christian brethren. And so they said, we have a possession. We have a piece of property, a field, a house. Let's sell it. Do the same thing. What they wanted to be like was Barnabas. They wanted to be like him. Certainly that's what Luke is suggesting. And yet, as we read the story, we find that they were anything but like Barnabas. Oh, Outwardly, they seemed to be, but inwardly, they were of quite a different character. They were as opposite from Barnabas as they could be. Barnabas was giving what he had out of thanksgiving to God and concern for God's people, and he was absolutely open and forthright about it. Ananias and Sapphira wanted to be treated the way Barnabas was treated, but they were anything but open and honest about it. They sold the property, they had the money, they looked at it. Maybe initially they even thought they were going to give it all. You know, money corrupts. The love of money, it says, is the root of all evil, and the more they looked at it, the more they loved it. And so if it hadn't been in their hearts before, the evil was hatched now, and they said, look, nobody knows how much we got for the sale of this property, and God certainly knows Christmas is coming, got a lot of presents we have to buy and lots of things that we could use. Why don't we just keep part of it? Nobody will know. Let's keep part of it and give the rest. And then people will say, ah, here's a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, just like Barnabas. I wonder what we ought to call them. A couple of encouragers. And nobody will know that we actually are keeping some of it back. So they did what they had planned, and the judgment we find in this chapter came. This is one of those sermons where I think you have to stop along the way and make your conclusions. You know, some sermons build up nicely to the end, and bang, there's a big conclusion. Other ones aren't like that, and you have to make them along the way, and you just can't pass this by without making the obvious conclusion. There is no perfect church. I read Acts 4.32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own. They shared everything they had. I think, ah, there's a perfect church. But it wasn't, you see. This church had within it Ananias and Sapphira, and they were hypocrites, and they were about to lie not merely to man but to God. Someone once came to Charles Haddon Spurgeon and said to him that they were leaving his church because they were going to go find a perfect church. And Spurgeon, who had a great deal of wit and sometimes was more forthright than people dare to be today, said, well, when you find it, please don't join it because you'll ruin it. (laughs) Generally, people come and they sometimes are very enthusiastic when they first come they say, ah, I have finally found it. This is my church. And I think, oh my goodness. (laughs) Let a week go by, a month go by, a year go by. Let them get to know us a little bit. And some of that enthusiasm is going to evaporate. I would hope, because God does work in all of us, that they find other things as well, that they find a genuine fellowship, that they find faithfulness to the Word of God, that they find praying people who really are concerned about one another. But Oh, my, there is no perfect church. I do say to people when they get unhappy with us, well, by all means, if you're unhappy with us, find a church that is more to your liking. That's all right. Some people prefer one kind of thing. Some prefer another. By all means, find a church that's to your liking. But above all, don't come here because you think it's perfect. There is no perfect church. And if it was perfect before you joined, it isn't anymore. And the sooner we recognize that about one another, the better off we'll be. That's one reason why we must pray for one another. One reason why we must pray for our church, that God will guard us against the onslaughts of Satan, keep us faithful to himself in spite of the sin in our hearts. So that's the first thing. Well, as I say, Ananias and Sapphira concocted this plan, and the fifth chapter tells us about it. With his wife's full knowledge, it says, Ananias kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, beginning with verse 3, we have Peter's reply, and it's a very significant reply. Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. Peter says three important things in that response, and I'd like to look at each one of them, not at the same length. But let's just look at what he says. The first thing I want to notice is not the first in order, but I want to notice it first because to my mind it's the least important, though it's important. When Peter says to Ananias, didn't it belong to you before it was sold, and after it was sold wasn't the money at your disposal, he is refuting communism, even a sanctified Christian kind of communism. People, you see, have looked at this period of sharing in the early church, have held it up as an ideal, and have said, well, that's what Christians always should do if they're obeying God. This makes it perfectly clear that that does not follow. Here, Peter is recognizing the right of private property. And it's not something that Peter was inventing. That's something you have in the Old Testament as well. You have it in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments say, Thou shalt not steal. Now, in order to steal, you have to take something that belongs to somebody else. And in order for it to be stealing, what you take has to belong to somebody else. They have to have the right to it. If they don't have the right to it, then it's not stealing to take it. Stealing when you take it, if you break into their house and take it by night, unknown. Stealing when the government takes it, if they do it by what we would call unjust taxation, even though they can get it passed through Congress or such things. You see, the Bible recognizes the right of private property. So does Peter. You have the right to it, said Peter. You didn't have to sell it. and After you sold it, you didn't have to give it. The problem was not in the fact that Ananias didn't. Give what he had, but that he pretended to give more than he was giving. The problem was his hypocrisy, his lying, not the fact that he owned property. So that's an important point, though, as I say, it's more minor than the rest. The second thing Peter said in his response to Ananias was that this was a matter of spiritual warfare. He does it by reference to Satan. How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? You see, when Peter spoke on this occasion, Peter, if in very few other occasions in his life, at least on this occasion, was speaking under the direct impress of God's Holy Spirit. Oh, I know there were times in Peter's life, especially before his conversion, when, like many of us, he simply blurted out whatever happened to be in his mind, and it wasn't much. An occasion presented itself, and Peter said whatever nonsense he was thinking. That's just the way Peter was. I am sure even after his conversion, though he was a much wiser and steadier man, that there were occasions when Peter said things that weren't true. He may have thought they were true. but they just weren't true. But here, if at any time in his life, Peter the apostle, in this situation, being the vehicle of God's judgment, the voicing of God's judgment upon this man, Ananias, is certainly speaking by the leading of the Holy Spirit. He had insight into the true situation. God's judgment came through him. And that means that when, on this occasion, Peter says, how is it that you have allowed Satan to fill your heart and so have done this wicked thing? Certainly it was true that Satan had done it. I'm emphasizing that because... We have a tendency in our speech to refer to Satan in glib terms. Oh, the devil led me to do this, and the devil led me to do that. And I sometimes say that it's probably very unlikely that the devil has led you to do any such thing. You just did it on your own. You weren't quite as smart as Satan. He would have done it more subtly, but just as bad. You can operate very well without him, and generally that's the case. But having said that, I nevertheless have to say that there is such a thing as spiritual warfare going on. And that's what was happening here. These were the early days of the church. Satan was against what was happening here, this Christian fellowship. Satan, the one who wants to take everything for himself, Satan who makes people as selfish as he can possibly make them, absolutely hated the spirit of generosity and unity among the early Christians. And so he said, with that kind of satanic, devious wisdom that he has, I'll just turn that thing around. I'll use that spirit of sharing to break down the very thing it's meant to express. I'll get them to lie and bring disharmony to the company. Satan, as I have said on a number of occasions, is a limited being. He's not omniscient As God is, He doesn't know everything, though He can make shrewd guesses. He's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful as God is, though He's very powerful. He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once as God is, so He certainly gets around, roaming up and down on the earth. As He said, we have it recorded in the book of Job. And although Satan is not the equivalent of God, Satan is a powerful foe. And Peter perhaps because of this incident, perhaps because of other things that happened to him in his life, when he came later in life to write to the Christians, as he did in his first letter, warns them to be on their guard against Satan. First Peter five eight: be self-controlled and alert, he says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That is true for us, you see. If we Go through a period in our church when God is blessing us, we can expect Satan to attack because Satan does not want the church of Jesus Christ to thrive. Oh, if you're going through the motions, you won't worry a great deal about that if you're not attempting anything really great for God, if you're not breaking any new ground, if you're not witnessing, if you're not serving in any particularly effective way, if you merely put up your notice every Sunday and say, divine worship will be held here, and you go through the motions, Satan's not going to care much about that. Why, he can put people to sleep in church better than he can anywhere else. But if if you're trying to do something for God, if the church is really effective, if you're breaking new ground, if you have a strong missions program, if you have people out witnessing in the city, if you're trying to embody the gospel in kinds of social work that minister to the needs of real people and demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ, then you can to be sure that Satan will attack. And that's what he did here, and we have to be on guard against him. Well, how do you do it? Satan is certainly stronger than we are. He was stronger than Ananias, even in the early days of the church, a man sitting under the apostolic preaching, listening to Peter every Sunday. How are you going to resist Satan? Well, James tells us how, and it's not all that difficult. James says, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Some of us, you see, try to resist the devil without first submitting to God. And the devil doesn't flee from us then. The devil runs over us like a tank because he's more powerful than we are. And when we submit to God, then you see we stand in God's strength, and because of God, the devil flees. We have spiritual battles in our lives or in our church. We have to draw near to God. We have to become increasingly men and women of prayer who wait upon him and submit to him through that spiritual exercise. That's the way. Satan is overcome and the gospel goes forward. Well, let me make a conclusion here before we go on. And it's the third point that Peter makes. He said that they had the right of private property. He pointed out that this was spiritual warfare. But in the third place, he says, You have not lied to men, but to God. He raises it to the highest possible spiritual dimension. And the point I want to make, the conclusion in this particular section of our study is this. What you do matters. Matters to God. Matters to other people. How you act matters. It matters to God. And it matters to other people. You see, we think sometimes because we Live in a world where people never want to take their actions seriously and try to put down the consequences of their bad deeds, that what we do really basically doesn't matter, or at least doesn't matter much. We say, Oh, I do something bad, but it doesn't really hurt anybody much. I do something good, but it doesn't really accomplish anything much. And so we somehow think we're unimportant. It's always helped me when I find myself drifting into that kind of thought. To remember the way C.S. Lewis put it when he was talking about men and women made in the image of God for communion with God as being eternal beings. He said, you see, that's what makes the difference. If we are only creatures of a moment, if we're only creatures of this life, if we live now, die, and that's the end of it, then it doesn't really matter a whole lot what we do. You can be as evil as Dorian and gray, and at the end of it, all you have is a wretched picture, and you die, and it's all over, you see. Might hurt a few people, but not many. But if we're eternal beings, beings that survive death, and survive death eternally, then you see the choices we make in this life not only matter, they matter infinitely because, as Lewis points out, you're either on your way to becoming what he calls an eternal splendor or you're on your way to becoming what he calls an eternal horror as you get more and more selfish and more turned in upon yourself. Maybe that's why God treated it so seriously here at the beginning of the church. It was God's way of saying, graphically, before the early Christian fellowship, what you do matters. It matters to me, matters to one another, and it matters to yourself. Your choices for good now lead in the direction of your conformity to Jesus Christ. And if you go the other way, you bear eternal consequences. Well, there's one last part to the story, and it has to do with Sapphira, Ananias's wife. It's important to consider that because it involves her guilt and her responsibility. Luke, who tells the story, points out her guilt in two ways. First of all, in verse 2, he adds the phrase, with his wife's full knowledge. Now, he's talking about Ananias and his sin, but he says that Sapphira was in on it from the beginning. She didn't come initially, as it seems, and present the money to Peter and say, here it is, it's all from God, and it's the whole result of the sale of our property. She was home, but she knew about it, so she was involved from the beginning. And then later on, after Ananias had been judged and died and he'd been taken out and buried, three hours later, as a matter of fact, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter asked her the question, tell me, Is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? That is, the money that Ananias had brought, what he had pretended was the full price for the land. And here she sealed her doom by saying yes. In other words, joining Ananias, her husband, in his lie. And judgment came to her as well. You see, she had responsibility, and that's the point I really want to emphasize in Sapphira's case. When you and I do things wrong or when our culture does things wrong today, we have great ability to somehow pass the responsibility off in one form of determinism or another. Determinism means that something has made me do what I do, and therefore it's not my fault. Now, you know how that operates. Sometimes we... Think in terms of an environmental determinism. I'm the way I am because that's what my parents were like, or because I grew up in a particular neighborhood, or because when I went to preschool at a young age, somebody didn't treat me properly or some such thing. That's an external kind of determinism, and we use it a lot. It's one way that we excuse crime. The only problem with it in our day is that crime has gotten so bad that people have gotten unhappy with that determinism. And so you find people, even the media, from secular perspectives denying that sort of thing today. They've been saying, and they're saying rightly, no, you're responsible. Oh, it's true, you may be harmed by circumstances. It is true, you may have a much greater time fighting against sin because of circumstances or environment. But nevertheless, in the final analysis, you are responsible. And I notice that some people, speaking to those in the poorest or most deprived communities of our country, say say it in a positive way to those who are there. They say the only one who is going to help you is yourself. And they're right in that. Oh, Again, you might have some external helps. The government might be able to do something. Civic groups might be able to do something. But in the final analysis, the only thing that's going to help you is yourself. We have a tendency to move away from that today, but that's one kind of excuse we make for our bad conduct. Sometimes there's an internal kind of determinism. We say, well, I'm just like that. What we're talking about is our genes. You know, we... We didn't get that from external sources, but that's just the way we are. We were born with that bad temper. We were born crooked. We were born a liar, or whatever it may be. The problem with that kind of excuse is that we use it for ourselves, but we disallow it in the case of other people. We always hold them accountable. A little boy once said to his mother, Mother, why is it that whenever... I do something wrong, I'm a bad boy, but whenever you do something wrong, it's your nerves. <laughs> you see, the mother was recognizing that the little boy was a creature made in the image of God and was responsible for what he did, but in her case, well, it was genetic. Why do we do that, you see? There's a kind of Christian determinism that's particularly appropriate to think about in this context. There's a view... In our land, it may be a misrepresentation of the person who originated it, but there's a view in our land that goes by the words, chain of command. It's to say, whoever's over me tells me what to do, and I have to do what they do, and therefore if I do what they do and it's wrong, it's them, not me, that's responsible. It's been used to justify wrong conduct by wives because husbands are their head, or by Husbands or citizens because the state tells them to do something that's wrong and the state is over them. So they try to excuse their conduct in that way. Let me say that that is wrong. That is wrong. There is such a thing as valid authority. The state is a valid authority. The church is a valid authority. The father and mother are valid authorities over their children. A husband is a valid authority over his wife, but that does not excuse wrong conduct. It is always wrong to do wrong, even if somebody else tells you to do it, even if somebody important tells you to do it, even if the king tells you to do it. Wrong is wrong. It is always wrong to do wrong, and in the same way, it is always right to do right. You know, in Jesus' day, they didn't want him to do right on the Sabbath. They said, well, you can't do those things on the Sabbath. It's against the law. And Jesus' response was, it is always right to do good on the Sabbath. It's always right to do right, whatever it is. And in the same way, it is always wrong to do wrong. You see, what you and I do when we blame somebody else for our conduct is, in the final analysis, blame God. See, it doesn't make any difference what kind of determinism you have. If it's environmental determinism, well, God's responsible for the environment. Or maybe other people have helped, made it the mess that it is, but God's the one that caused me to be born there. God's the one who allowed me to be exposed to those circumstances. If it's an internal kind of determinism, it's my genes. Well, God's the one that gave me the genes. After all, he made me. I didn't make myself. If it's a kind of chain of command determinism, well, God gave me my husband. God put me in this state. God gave me the kind of parents I have. Therefore, it's his fault ultimately. Adam and Eve did it, you know. They were the first ones to think it up. They blamed one another. Adam blamed his wife, but it was the wife God gave him. Eve blamed the serpent, but after all, who was it who let that serpent get into the garden? You see, ultimately, they were blaming God. And so when we come to this story of Sapphira, what it teaches and what it teaches clearly is that we are responsible for what we do, and it's always wrong to do evil. Well, I want to make a final conclusion. I've made a number of them throughout this study. Let me make one last one. And it's just this. God intends to judge sin. When we talk about these people, Ananias and Sapphira, who, as far as we know, were believing people, were not to understand that this judgment upon them, the judgment by death, was the equivalent of consigning them to hell fire. Christians do not lose their salvation. They're not cut off from God because they sin, because they lie, or because they do something else. But Christians do lie, Christians do sin, and God is not indifferent to the violation. I want to take you to one last verse. It's in 1 Peter again. I think perhaps because this incident made such an impression on Peter in these early days of the church. Verse 17 of the fourth chapter of that letter, he says it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And as he knew how bad things were, he knew that the church in his day wasn't perfect, and he said it's time for judgment to begin with us. But now notice what he goes on to say. It's time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel. When we sin, the devil is always there to say it doesn't matter. And if the devil isn't there to say it, we think it up by ourselves. It doesn't matter. It really won't hurt. God doesn't care. Listen, read Acts 5. God does care. God takes sin seriously, and every sin in life will be judged. Sins of believers, terms of their eternal destiny, are judged at the cross of Jesus Christ. God took sin so seriously that he sent Jesus Christ to die for it. And even after Christians have believed, God expects them to live like his people, and he will not allow them to go on and on and on in sin indefinitely. Here was an extreme example of judgment, but there are others. Paul said in writing to the Corinthians that some of them so abused the Lord's Supper that many had fallen asleep. He meant many of them had died because of it, and others, he said, are sick because of the mistreatment. God takes sin seriously. And listen, if God takes sin seriously, if God judges sin, even in the lives of His people, how dreadful is the case of those who have not responded to the gospel. If you haven't come to faith in Jesus Christ, read this story and see the fate that awaits you in that day when you stand before the justice bar of God pretending to be something you are not. And God Himself, not Peter, not a human minister, not an erring child of Adam, but God Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, looks into your heart and says, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity because I never knew you. God calls you to faith in Jesus Christ now. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask that the words of these verses might burn their way into our hearts and minds. For those who have been listening who have not responded to the gospel, Do impress upon them. Don't let them escape. Don't let them walk away saying to themselves, that's just that man's opinion. God doesn't care about my sin. Father, cause the words to burn into their hearts that they might turn from it and find salvation in the Lord Jesus. And oh, our Father, for those who know Christ as Savior, give us such a sense, a renewed sense of your holiness that we count it a horrible thing to sin and instead submit ourselves to you and resist Satan in order that he might flee from us and we might go in the way of Jesus Christ, which is life eternal. Amen and amen.